Good morning. Awesome. Get my glasses out here. So this week, we've been working through our way through the book of 1 John. And this week, we get to kind of a difficult topic to talk about. We're talking about lawlessness or righteousness. And I think it's a, it's, a, it's a major theme in the Bible. It goes all the way back to Cain and Abel, where you see there's two religious people offering to God their offerings. And later in, we learn in the book of Hebrews that, that Abel's offering was accepted because it was of faith. And Cain, on the other hand, was just doing something from the works of his hands, and it was uh, kind of a works idea of following God, and that's why it was rejected. But this whole idea of, of either practicing righteousness or lawlessness, lawlessness goes all the way back in this main theme. Uh, you can see this with Jesus and the Pharisees as well. Again, you have Jesus who is righteous. He is the righteousness of God. And then, on the other hand, you had these religious knuckleheads who thought that they were following God and they were actually following the devil. And again, they were practicing lawlessness, and they thought that they were under the law, but they weren't. And this, this whole theme is related to works and grace, unbelief and faith, truth and deception, rebellion or obedience. And there isn't any middle ground on this one. You're either one or the other. You might think you're good, but the reality is, if you're in lawlessness, you're lawless. You're separated from Christ. But if you're following Christ, then you're righteous. And your righteousness comes from Him, both initially in justification and then as we follow Him in sanctification, we become like Christ. And as we go through this, and I want you to just keep this in mind, this is what we're talking about, is either being obedient to God or not. Now, I'm going to get myself in trouble this week. <laughs> You're going to love this. But as I, we've been talking about uh, interpreting the Word of God, this is a key factor for our obedience, is understanding the Word of God correctly. So as an exercise of that, before we get into the Word, I wanted to just bring something out and kind of show you what I'm talking about. So I'm going to, I'm going to say a scripture, and it's a very common scripture. We've heard it before. And I want you to just think in your mind, what does it mean to you? Or what, how do you perceive it? It's probably a better way to put it. So Ephesians 5.22 says, wives submit, yourself, uh, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So think about that one for a second. Now, we're both men and women in here, so we have two sides of this issue, right? So, from a wise perspective, you may say, well, that doesn't apply to me. That was for somebody else a long time ago. Or from a husband's perspective, the wrong perspective, uh, uh, response would be, well, I must make my wife submit. Both of those are incorrect. We have to apply things in context. And if you apply it directly to your own context, you will probably miss the meaning and point of the scripture. And it's important to understand the context in which it was written so you can understand it and give it the word authority in your life. The question you have to ask yourself is, what would it mean for a wife to submit to her husband 2,000 years ago? 
It might be a little bit different in our society than what it meant then when it was written. And if you really want to understand it correctly and apply the scripture, you have to understand it from a perspective of when it was written. Remember, this is a hermeneutical rule that we must understand what the husband and wife's relationship was like when the scripture was written to get a proper and true understanding. The point of scripture Paul was using is the understanding of an earthly marriage relationship in Ephesus to demonstrate our relationship to Christ and the love of Christ towards the church, which is interesting because the Lord rebukes the church in Ephesus because they left their first love. So they kind of missed the mark. So let's look at a Hebrew expression of love between a husband and his wife. If you look back to the Song of Songs in 7 through 10, the psalmist writes, I belong to my love, and his desire is for me. This just demonstrates a loyal love. And again in 1 Peter 3, 5 through 7, Peter writes, For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. This pretty much sets the example for us of what it means for a wife to submit to her husband and for us as Christians how we should submit to Christ. In the immediate context of Ephesians 5, verses 21 says that we should submit to one another in the fear of Christ. You know, we love one another. That's the one aspect that's being brought out by the Scripture. In Ephesians 5.10, it says we should learn what is pleasing to our Lord. What we do in our lives here, we should do as unto Christ. Everything we do is unto Jesus. And learn what He wants us to do and do what is pleasing to Him. In verse 17 of Ephesians 5, it says, Understand what the will of the Lord is. This should be why we do things. is because we understand what God wants us to do and we understand what's pleasing to Him. Paul gets even more specific in Ephesians 5.25 and describes the husband's role in all this. It doesn't mean that the husband lords it over the wife, but understands that he has a responsibility before God to function as God intends. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So how did Christ give himself to the church? Well, he died. The sacrificial love that the husband has towards the family, that you do things out of love. And the point is, understanding the relationship of marriage brings us to an understanding of who we are in Christ. If we understand how women were submissive in the first century church, then we can have an idea of how to relate to God. Women in the first century church had very important roles, but they were not in charge of the church, nor in the family. So when I look towards Christ, I realize that I'm not in charge. Do we have an authoritative relationship to Christ? Yeah, absolutely yes. And frankly, it's why, for example, I'm preaching right now. I'm just a farmer. God told me to do this. He led me into this, so that's why I'm doing it. 
We are supposed to submit to God. In James 1.22 it says, But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. If you're not doing what God wants you to do, you're delusional. You're not walking in, in Christ. This is what he has for you to do. And he has great plans for our lives that he wants us to, to do well for him. And James 4, 7-10 through 10 says, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Double-minded means we're looking at our sinful natures instead of looking for what God would have us to do in our lives. Be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. When you put yourselves under the Lord's authority and do what He wants you to do, He's the one that is doing it all. And He will bring things about as He chooses. It says in the Bible also that we should submit to church leaders. In Hebrews 13, 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls of those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. You know, everyone is not in charge in the church. God sets things up a certain way, and he puts certain people in charge, and we need to work together, and leadership needs to communicate to us, but God does put certain men in charge in the church. We should understand that. We should even submit to human institutions. In 1 Peter 2, verse 13, it says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king or as one in authority. You know, in my life, the Lord had told me to go into the military for 24 years. I had to talk it over with the Lord on that one. So you sure you want me to do this? He goes, yeah, submit to these authorities because I put them in charge and, and I want you to work for them. So, okay, I'll do that. And, and, and that was a lesson in authority for me, personally, how to operate under authority. You know, certainly the army's got that one down pretty good, I think. But if you pull this scripture, wives submit to your husbands out of context and do not let it speak to your heart, you might find yourself in rebellion to God's word because you do not understand it and have not let the Word demonstrate authority in your life. So this week, we're going to talk about abiding with God and practicing righteousness or being self-centered and practicing lawlessness. Correctly interpreting and understanding the authority of the Word of God has everything to do with abiding with God and practicing righteousness. The title for this week's sermon is Submitting to Christ Produces Righteousness. That's what we ought to be about. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day and thank you for your great love. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ who obediently walked before your will. This is something that was predetermined before time that he would come to die on a cross to, to pay the penalty for our sins and that we should be raised to new life in Christ and follow you obediently. This is what you have done for us. And it is your work in us. It's not what we're doing, it's what you are doing in us. And we exalt you and we praise you and we give you glory for your work and what you're doing. And may you be highly exalted as we fall down before your throne. And we ask simply, what do you want us to do? Thank you, God, for loving us. 
Thank you for your mercy upon us. Thank you for saving us. And thank you for aligning us with your will and helping us to be obedient. We need you, Jesus. Thank you so much for what you've done and helping us to minister to each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So our message comes from 1 John. We'll start off with 1 John 3, verses 4 through 7. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins, and no one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. And this brings us to our first point, that abiding leads to practicing. So what is lawlessness? Well, Galatians 5, 19 through 21 pretty much paints a picture for us. He says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and like these things of which I forewarn you, just as I forewarn you, he said it twice, so he means it, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I think the word practice there is really helps us to understand, to get an idea. It's something that we are, you would do on a regular basis. We tend to say that the world practices lawlessness, and that's absolutely true. Everyone who is outside of Christ practices lawlessness on a regular basis. That's what they do. That's what they're made of. But not the church. Well, actually, John is writing to the church, isn't he? He's writing this letter to the church so the church understands that they shouldn't be caught up in these things. Well, let's talk about some of this stuff. Idolatry. What is idolatry? Well, anything that takes the place of God in your life. Not to step on anybody's toes, but I think if you miss church on Sunday because a football game's on, there might be a problem. You know? Uh, when I first became a Christian, I had this, this shiny black Chevelle. Any gearheads in here? I think I told you about this car before, right? had a Chevy V8. I rebuilt the thing with my hands. It had chrome wheels. It was jacked up. It had headers. I mean, this was a nice car for a high school kid. This is awesome, right? Well, about, when I was 19 years old, I became a Christian, I started looking at this car, and I said, man, I spent way too much time on this thing. And I want Jesus to know that this is not an idol. You know, I don't think it was at that point, really. And I could have kept it and kind of rationalized it, I suppose. But I wanted Jesus to know I was serious, so I sold it. Here you go. Here's your car, Lord. You know, if you want to have it back, you're going to have to give it to me. And I sold my dirt bikes and everything. Well, he gave me back the dirt bikes. That was cool. And I was able to talk to my friends about Christ. But I never got the car back. Nothing wrong with having collector cars. But the point is, if something is so important for you that it prioritizes your time, you ought to think about it. Maybe this is becoming an idol in your life. And it affects us. Take it up with the Lord. You know, it's between you and him. Sorcery. Witchcraft. Hmm. Anytime... And there's certain sects of Christianity. If you think that you can pray to pry things out of God's hands, that's like witchcraft. We pray obediently to God because we know what God's will is. We want to know what is pleasing to Him. Lord, what is pleasing to you? That is what I want to do. It's not about me prying things out of your hands. 
You will give me all good things. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All this other stuff will be given to you. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But we need to have the right priority. And if you think you can get things out of God's hands by naming it and saying, I'm going to believe this, no, that's not the way God works. It's all about us being obedient to Him. Hate, enmities. You know, we carry hatred or bitterness in our heart. That's not good. You need to give that stuff up for your sake. You know, and maybe things will work out with that other person. Maybe it won't. But get over it. Give it to God. Let Him heal your heart so you can move on. Strife is being contentious and jealous and envying. Outbursts of anger, that's pretty straightforward. But it demonstrates wrath. And God says that's His department, not ours. That will, that will cause us problems. Dissensions, factions, caused by heresy. If there's inaccurate translations of the word, we need to keep ourselves in line with that, right? So that we don't get off course. Envying, drunkenness, carousing, that's pretty straightforward. We know what that is. This isn't a complete list either, but basically if you're following your sinful nature, you're going to be caught up in some of this stuff. We know what, when we go to get off course. We know what happens. And everyone who is out, operating outside of Christ is practicing lawlessness. It's interesting in the different translations with verses 4 and 8, it uses different words for this. The NASB says practices sin. And the NIV says does what is sinful. Or the Holman Christian Study Bible says commits sin. But I think this word practicing is really a key word that we need to understand. It's poeo, which is to make or do. It's most often translated make or made. It's what you're made of because of who you are, either in Christ or outside of Christ. Jesus is in your heart and mind and makes you a new creature. He said, no one who abides in him sins. And this word abide is also key. It means, uh, the Greek word is meno. It means to remain or to be steadfast. If you are walking with Christ, if you're abiding with him, it's like the other side of practicing sin. If you're abiding with Christ, then you're going to do what he wants you to do. Because you're in Christ. It does not mean that we're without sin. It means that we will not remain in it or be made of it. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago in 1 John 1, 8-10 says, if we, have, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, 1 John 3, 6 and 9 seem contrary to 1 John 8, doesn't it? But remember the key words, abiding and practicing. In verse 6, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. That's, you're staying in that sin. You know, when you sin, you have to actually turn away from God, and, and it's a form of idolatry when that occurs. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. It doesn't mean we don't ever sin. It means you can't stay there because the Lord will tell you, hey, you're messing up. You need to get back into my word and do what I tell you to do. 1 John 1 is talking about salvation and justification. 1 John chapter 3, verses 6 and 9 is very specific and is addressing a being pure in sanctification through the Holy Spirit. And we have this hope and we purify ourselves because of Christ. And again, abide is a key word. 
Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. We have always a need to confess our sins so we can work through it and overcome it. And once we do that, then we are abiding in Christ. The key is abiding in Christ. If you are abiding in Christ, how can you sin? And 1 John 3.6 says, the word says, then ASB translate abide. The NIV says lives. And the Holman Christian study says remains in him. And I think those are all good translations. When we sin, we turn away from Christ and the Holy Spirit and we follow the sin, which is a form of idolatry. We all sin occasionally and need to ask forgiveness. I'm amazed that when we are unfaithful, Christ remains faithful, doesn't he? When we turn away from him, he brings us back. We're like sheep. We need help, right? That's why he calls us sheep, because we're like that. We turn away from him, but he brings us back. Christ remains faithful all the time. You know, and this is one point I'm, I think I'm learning in my life right now. I'm learning that he is confident of his work in us, in me, not necessarily my work so much. He's confident in himself and what he's doing in my life. And that's important, that we have that perspective on things. I'm just glad that he doesn't leave me when I offend him, because I know that's what I deserve. That's what grace is about. Some people in Christian denominations think that they are perfect, and I would point them towards 1 John 1.8. Because until we see him and become as he is, we will struggle with sin, and we need the help of the Holy Spirit to crucify the flesh and the blood of Christ to forgive our sins. And as we work with Christ and become more like him, he helps us to walk in his righteousness. And I think it's important to understand how you work in, to do what's right and be righteous. And 1 John 3, verse 7 says, The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. And I think there are two things that we must understand to be able to do what is right. It's kingdom authority and Christ's righteousness at work in us. In Matthew 6.33, Jesus says, But seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I think here in America we have a confusion of what really freedom is all about. We, we correlate freedom to rebellion. Oh yeah, you're free to do whatever you want to do. You're free to choose whatever sin you want to sin in. But if you want true freedom, Christ is the only one who sets you free. And you are set free to serve Christ and only Him. You start wandering away and doing your own thing, that's idolatry. It's not following Christ. We need to understand that we are under a kingdom authority. And we must first seek His kingdom. And it's an interesting story that you don't hear preached about very much. It's about the centurion in Luke 7, verses 6-9. through and this is a, an army guy, right? A Roman. But he understood this, this lesson about authority. And Jesus, the, the word makes it very clear how we are to perceive this authority issue, kingdom authority, and how it applies in our life and how we should obey it. I think it's a, just an amazing story. Anyways, uh, Luke 7, 6-9. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and who was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, Lord. He called Jesus Lord. That means that's a submissive thing. I am under your authority. You are my master. You're my Lord. Do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. 
For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. He's humble. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. Just say it. For I am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go. And he goes. And to another one, come. And he comes. And to my slave, do this. And he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, sometimes when Jesus heard, sees stuff, or he stops. He stops the show. Hey, this is what I'm talking about. This is what you need to listen to. This is a good example of kingdom authority. This is what I'm talking about. This is what he said. He marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have found such great faith. He's talking about a Roman. That ought to keep our our interest in this story. This is an army guy who understood authority and he was working under authority, kingdom authority. And he recognized the authority in Christ, that Christ had authority in his kingdom to do as he chose to do. And he just submitted himself to God's authority and said, you just tell me, just say the word, I know it will be done, because I recognize you are under authority as I am. He understood the principle of authority and he let it work. Jesus, you just say the word, I know it will be done. The centurion understood authority and obedience and Jesus related it to faith. And, And Paul uses the term obedience of faith. Faith and obedience are tied together. You can't have one without the other. We are led by the Word of God, truth, and the Holy Spirit is the life in our heart. And in this one verse, I think it bears repeating, Romans 12, 2, it says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That's us as a submissive wife looking and saying, What do you want me to do, Lord? I submit to you. And we're transformed by the Word. Who, who renews our mind and makes us new. He creates us and makes us new creatures. We must understand the word correctly and apply it and follow it and do it. And, and here's a warning. Satan will appear, appeal to your emotions, to your pride, to covetousness and lust, to distort the truth and lead people away. I had, we were down in Alabama and I had this one... We visited, we got back from Germany, and our tour in Germany was kind of dry because we couldn't find good places to worship. I mean, everyone spoke German, so you couldn't understand that. You go to a chapel, and you never know what you're going to get there. So it was, it was difficult. And after five years, we came back to the States, and we were looking around for different churches. You know how that is. You go kind of test out the water to see what's going on. And we went to this one uh, church, and they were the type of church where they thought that faith was all about getting things from God, not obedience. And so we went into, they had a very exciting service, you know, people were running all over the place, jumping around, I said, well, this is kind of crazy. But then we had a pastor come to our house later and visit us. We had this discussion about faith. And he's trying to convince me how Jesus went out in, you know, he was walking by that fig tree that one day and he cursed the fig tree and it came back later and he noticed it was withered up. And Peter said, hey, look at that, the tree's withered. He says, oh, if you believe that, you know, you can do great things. Even mountains fall. So they took that scripture and they applied it and they said, you know, if we just believe things enough, if we just earn, if we just think about it and say it enough and we believe it in our heart, it's going to happen. So this guy came into my house. Uh Uh-oh, I got my grouchy voice out. Put that away. 
This guy came into my house and he tried to convince me that faith was about getting things from God, prying it away from God. Remember we talked about witchcraft earlier? Yeah. So I said, well, let me see if I got this straight. I said, now, so let's use this apple tree in my backyard, for example. This apple tree exists. I put it in the ground myself. It's growing fine. So you're telling me that if I curse that tree and I believe it in my heart, that God's going to curse that tree and make it die. He goes, yeah, that's right. He seemed kind of relieved that I finally got the point. I said, well, what if God doesn't want my tree to die? He totally didn't understand what I was even talking about. You see, faith brings us into obedience. It's not about me prying things from God's hands. It's about me doing what God wants me to do in the first place. It's about being obedient to God through the love of God in my heart and His Word who gives us guidance and direction and understanding what the will of God is so that we can do what He wants us to do. Man, I, could, I never went back to that church. You know, that was just destructive to people's faith. And I'll just mention this kind of off the cuff, but think about what that does to people's faith. If you think that you come up to the front of the church in a wheelchair, and you think, if I have enough faith, God's going to make me stand up out of this wheelchair. What if He doesn't? What is that? That destroys your faith. Well, I don't have faith. God's going to give you a new body later in glory. The person in the wheelchair has the same hope as we do. If you have a, a physical infirmity, maybe God will heal it, maybe He won't. But we're, we're, He's going to deliver us. He's got this thing. We just need to align ourselves with Him and do what He wants us to do. You get the point. It's about obedience. Being obedient to God. The centurion understood what that was all about. Just do what you're told. If you don't know what to do, then ask for wisdom. Obedience is based on truth, knowing God's will and being motivated by love. I love this. Jesus uses an economy of words here that says, pretty much says it all. In John 14, 15, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Love is the obedient, the motivator for obedience. We should seek first his righteousness. And we talked about this last time I spoke. First John uh, chapter 3, verses 2 and 3 says, Beloved, we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be but we know when he appears we will be like him because we will see him just as he is he'll make us perfect then we're not quite there yet and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself now just as he is pure we're not pure yet but we will be perfect When we see Him, we will be like Him. He will eradicate the sinful nature. He will give us new bodies. They're not prone to sin. And and that bodies that can stand His glory, too. And we purify ourselves because He is pure. Because we have this hope of seeing Christ, we purify ourselves and walk by His authority in our life. We, in essence, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 2.12 We know that we will be judged according to what we have done in the body, whether good or bad. Being successful is about operating under Christ's authority. God's authority in your life is based on God's Word and understanding it correctly. And it's motivated by love. Again, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll do what I said. 
you do follow my commandments. In 1 John 3, verses 8 and 9, it says, The one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God has, was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin because his seed remains in him, and he is not able to sin because he has been born of God. Which brings us to our second point, that Jesus destroys the work of the devil. And this is pretty much across the board in the church. You have to be careful from leaders all the way through the laity of people being deceived and led away from truth. In Matthew 7, 15-17, we're warned, Beware of false prophets, Jesus speaking about the Pharisees, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from the thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So how can we identify what is false, like that guy that came to my house? Doctrine. Doctrine's important. If you deviate from sound doctrine, you're not walking by the truth anymore. You're being deceived. You're basically under the, the you're walking by the, the devil, as far as that goes. Truth is important. Another indicator's behavior. Are they guided by emotions, greed, lust? Or are they guided by truth and obedience? Are they seeking to be obedient or are they hungering for power? I don't know. We should be obedient, humbly walking before God. Like that centurion. In Matthew 23, 27-28, says, Woe to you. Jesus calls out the scribes. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, whom on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And it can apply to any Christian as well. Matthew 7, 21-23 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Just because you say you're a Christian doesn't mean you're following obedience to God. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter it. It's about obedience. It's about obediently following God and doing what he wants you to do. And that takes humility, falling down before God, and just saying, I'm I'm willing to do whatever. Make me new. Make me a new creature. Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this stuff? Didn't we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform miracles? You know, they had supposedly authority and they did all this stuff. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Talk about a letdown. Lawlessness lawlessness, and cold love go together. People who, who don't love God will be led away. Matthew 24, 9-12 says, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. The two are tied together. Obedience and love. Now, on the positive side, Jesus' high priestly prayer is for you to be sanctified in truth. 
John 17, 13-21 says, But now I come to you, and these things I speak to the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. For their, sa- for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I think this is talking about abiding with God in such an intimate way. We're sanctified, we're set apart in Christ to serve Christ. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may also be as one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. This is talking about abiding in God, just like God, Jesus, abides in his Father. It's such a closeness and wonderfulness uh, that he has for us. The word sanctify is hagazio which means to make holy, consecrate, sanctify, set apart for service to God. It's being set apart is based on truth working in your heart and mind. And John 8, 31-32 says, Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you will truly be disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. We're not... Free because we say we're Christian. We're not free because we live in the United States of America. You're not free because you own a Harley. You're free because the Word of God works in your heart and your mind and it makes you free to serve Christ. And if you think that that you are outside of that obedience, outside of Christ's authority, you're in rebellion against God and you're not free. Only one thing will set you free, and it's God's Word. It's Christ Himself working in your heart to set you free so that you can serve Him obediently. The Word will make you free. Jesus Himself, God's Word incarnate, obediently walked through the Holy Spirit. And in Philippians 2, 7 and 8, it says, But He emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, Now that word, we talked about this in Sunday school this morning, is actually the word doulos, it's slave. Jesus himself operated under God's authority directly as a slave to God. I am, yes, he's God, but he's in such tight relationship with God, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant or a slave, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, being obedient to the point of death on a cross, even death on a cross. Jesus is our example of how to walk with God. Hebrews 12.2 says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Some translations say perfecter of our faith. But I think both is correct. He is the perfecter of faith. Jesus always walked in obedience to his Father. He's the perfecter of faith. He did everything as he should do. He suffered for God perfectly. He did everything exactly as he was supposed to do. 
fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down to the right hand of the throne of God. And we, we talked about this this morning as well in Sunday school. What was the joy set before him? Well, he knew that we would all be saved, and that certainly would bring God joy, because God loves us. But I think here it's talking about Jesus doing obediently, walking before God and saying, if you want me to die on the cross, I will do it. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? That's what he said. Lord, not my will, but yours be done. I will follow you and I will die on this cross because it is what you have for me to do. And because of Jesus' perfect obedience, we are in Christ. We are perfectly obedient in Christ. And when we deviate from the truth, God pulls us right back in so that we can be found to be perfect as He is perfect. That's a miracle, I would say, especially in my life. But we have a lot to give God praise and glory for, don't we? What was the joy set before Jesus? I think it was being obedient to the Father. MacArthur puts it this way. He says, perfect love will yield perfect obedience. And Jesus loved his Father perfectly. Back to Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 27. It says, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, that he might present himself the church, in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. You see, this scripture is like a beautiful analogy comparing uh, marriage that we understand, in this case 2,000 years ago to the original writers, and the love of Christ to the church. This is an analogy of how we walk in the Spirit, which is in a comparison of a submissive wife to her husband, to, to us following Christ. The main point is that we learn to walk with Christ and and the submissive wife is the example. And we must go back to the time when it was written and understand how wives viewed their roles 2,000 years ago. Remember, we looked at biblical exegesis and the main rule is to understand Scripture in context. And if you pull it into our context, sadly, because of feminism and different things, I'm not going to go there, but you know, we have a different understanding sometimes about authority, don't we? I'll just leave it at that. We have to understand our role to the Spirit. We must understand that we must submit to God as a wife would have submitted to her husband 2,000 years ago in Roman and Hebrew culture. When we submit to God, God's Word cleanses our mind and we will obediently follow Christ. We have a responsibility to read God's Word and pray every day. It's good to have a clear conscience before God. Your conscience is clear because of the word of God washes your mind. And God tells you that you are his and that your sins are forgiven. In Titus 3, verses 4 through 7, it says, But when the kindness of our God and Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. That's through the Word of God. Whom he poured upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
It is the Holy Spirit in truth who regenerates you and makes you a new creature. It is the love of Christ that comes from abiding in his love that gives you a new heart. He is the vine and we are the branches, and apart from him we can do nothing, right? It is the truth that transforms your mind and the dwelling Holy Spirit transforms your heart. And remember Romans 12, 1-2 says that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The transforming occurs uh, by the renewing of your mind occurs because you understand the word of God in context and give the authority to God. This process brings us into the perfect will of God. And we talked about this earlier too, the difference between conformed and transformed. If you're following your sinful nature, you're going to be conformed to the world. It's just going to happen. But if God's working in your heart and mind, you'll be transformed and renewed into the image of Christ. In conclusion, 1 John 3.8 says, The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God has appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. So how does Jesus, or did Jesus, destroy the works of the devil? First, Jesus destroyed the authority of the devil and took authority himself. John 12.31 says, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Jesus Christ has authority to do that, and it will happen. In Revelation 1.18, Jesus says, I have the keys to death in Hades. He has authority. Jesus also destroyed the works of the devil by giving us justification. And 1 John 3.5 says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. In him there is no sin. Jesus destroyed the works of the devil by giving us power for living. In Galatians 2.12, it says, I have, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This crucifying of the flesh is talking about our sinful nature, how that has to be killed that we may have this new life. Galatians 5, 24 and 25 says, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Since the works of Christ are at work in us, let us obediently walk with Christ. Galatians 6, 8, 9 says, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap reap if we do not grow weary. And finally, in 1 John 3.10 says, This is how God's children and the devil's children are made evident. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially the one who does not love his brother. And this goes back to if you hate and hold bitterness towards someone. That's an indication that you're walking in your sinful nature. And it's all based on truth, motivated by love. God calls us to a higher calling that we should follow Him and do what He would have us to do. The truth of Christ transforming your mind and the love of Christ renewing your heart makes you a new creature. 
Aren't you glad that God, our God, is a creative God? He's the God of creation who, who miraculously created everything that we can see. And then he comes back and recreates in us a new heart and a new mind that we can follow him. And we achieve that just by asking, by faith. 